If you don't mind, would you please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to begin in verse 11 reading this text. Uh, as you, most of you know that uh, uh, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision uh, in which uh, same-sex marriage was legalized, uh, the question really arises um, where we go from here. In fact, I simply entitled this message, What Now?, and I'm going to attempt to uh, give a very, not a simplistic, but a simple explanation, as simple as I can, of something that is hardly could be called a simple topic. In fact, I think some of the error that we often fall into is we think it's a simple issue, it's just a black and white thing, that, uh, and, and therefore we, we have our uh, responses in place. But the reality is there's huge complexity involved in this on a number of different levels. And so what I'm going to try to do is kind of cover this in as comprehensive a way, uh, but not so comprehensive or complex that I leave you dizzy with details. But would you mind standing with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, makes the following statement. He says, it was he, speaking of Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for a very specific purpose, to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that as a consequence of this time we spent today, that in fact, that we would become people that are prepared as we see the world around us changing, our society changing. Lord, prepare us to be your witnesses in this age, Lord. We pray that we would be unified as a community of believers in, in what we believe and know to be true, that you would fill us with the knowledge of God so that we might speak as people that are informed and not just simply people who are opinionated that we might be mature spiritually in our response, that we would stop reacting like infants and instead, Lord, walk in love. And to know, Lord, clearly what your word teaches so that we can escape those cunning and crafty and deceitful things that people say that often mislead. Help us to grow up, Lord, we pray, and speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Unless you've been living in a cave in Tora Bora, Afghanistan for the last week, uh, you're pretty well, I'm pretty assured that you've heard of the Supreme Court's decision, which is probably one of the most monumental decisions in the history of legal jurisprudence in this country. You see, it was just 20 years ago that the U.S. House and Senate passed by an overwhelming majority an act called the Defense of Marriage Act. And basically the decision was misunderstood by most people, but basically what it said was that the decision of whether or not same-sex couples can marry will be decided on a state-by-state -state basis. 
Now, because most of us slept through civics class or today don't even have a civics class, you may not know that basically the foundation of our governance is supposed to be the state governments, not the federal governments. And this was in keeping with that philosophy. Let each state by its own plebiscite or legislature make those decisions on how they're going to fall out. And Interestingly, only uh, two states actually ultimately made it legal to marry at same-sex marriages. But at the time when this DOMA law, as it's called, Defense of Marriage Act, was passed, it was widely supported by everyone. In fact, President Bill Clinton, who actually signed the law, said he had long opposed government recognition of same-gender sexes, or marriages, excuse me. Uh, his wife, a later Senator Hillary Clinton, made in 2000, as she was preparing to run for president, said, marriage has got historic, religious, and moral content that goes back to the beginning of time, and I think a marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, our current president, uh, Barack Obama, He's a little confusing. He was for it before he was against it and then became for it again. Uh, in 2004, he said, what I believe is that marriage is between a man and a woman. We have set a tradition in that place that I think needs to be preserved. I don't think marriage is a civil right. Today, he takes a totally different point of view along with a number of politicians. So all of that has changed, and it didn't change just because of this one ruling by the Supreme Court, which I think is, is, is really important for us to understand, because many of us have really been so kind of disconnected with the cultural flow of things that we really don't see the changes that are going on around us. It's like that old adage of the frog in the kettle. You put a frog in a kettle of cool water, put it on the stove at a low heat, and over time, most of you women know, low heat will boil water eventually. Frogs who are not, don't have great skin sensors don't realize that it's getting hotter because it's so incremental, and then one day they just simply expire because they boil to death. Well, culture has often been likened like that. It changes in imperceptible ways unless you're looking at it with very strong gaze. And as it changes, people just adapt to those changes until many times they may come to a certain point where they're saying, wait a minute, how did we get here? Well, in many ways, we have to understand that where we're at today was outlined strategically by Marshall Kirk, who is a neurologist and understands a bit about human thinking and processing, and Hunter Madsen. They wrote a book called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. They came up with a, a three-point strategy that was really widely adopted and followed with amazing amount of discipline. And they said things essentially like this. The first step is you have to desensitize people towards their anti-gay feelings. And by doing, he said, inundating them in a continuous flood of gay-related media presented at le in the least offensive fashion possible. So part of the strategy was to begin to come up with a lot of TV shows which really portrayed uh, gays in a very friendly, affable, intelligent, likable way. And I want to be careful when I say that. I'm not inferring that that's necessarily a deception. Quite honestly, I know and have known many gay people that 
are really nice people. Some are actually nicer than some Christians I know, I'm afraid to say. In fact, our bookkeeper, her husband, had a stroke uh, um, last weekend. Uh, their lesbian neighbors have come over and cut their lawn and cared for them in a most loving and gracious way. And she said to me, frankly, they're some of the nicest people I know. So I don't want to imply that the portrayal of, of gay-friendly people or likable people is somehow uh, wrong and deceptive and evil, but it was simply saying we need to change the way that people look at the gay community. But secondly, they said we, we need to engage in what they called jamming. And jamming is linking what they said, I quote them again, homo-hating bigotry with all sorts of attributes the bigot would be ashamed to possess. And with social consequences, he would find unpleasant and scary. Thanks to our friends at Westboro Baptist, this congregation of about 20 people that gets more airtime than the president because they are so outrageous, so off the wall, so crazy, they really played right into the idea that anybody who would say anything contrary about uh, gayness would be basically associated with these people who um, really nobody in their right mind wants to be associated with. But let me tell you, they, it's been very successful so that the Christianity as a whole has begun to become categorized or viewed as being pretty bigoted and pretty hateful. And let's admit, not totally without justification. The final phase is what we call what they called conversion. They said we are safest in the long run if we can actually make them like us. And so we began to find that there are certain personalities. I mean, Ellen DeGeneres, one of the funniest women, and quite honestly, very likable, uh, who's very successful. Tim Cook, uh, I have to like him. He's the president of Apple. There is no other choice for me, but also a very generous, gracious person. Anderson Cooper, one of my favorite news reporters. The guy does an amazingly good job. And you begin to realize that there are people out there who are very likable, very people that you would be kind of blessed to know. I already know I'm getting in hot water here with some of you. The whole simple point is the strategy worked. They won. They won. And now we have to ask, what is going to be our response? What's next? What are we going to do now? Well, I can tell you three things that we can expect to take place over the next decade at least. Uh, first of all, there's going to be a lot of litigation. In other words, trials. Uh, Mark Whittington, who writes for Legal Matters with the Houston Examiner, put it. He said, the country's in store for endless court battles that will try to establish the line between church and state where same-sex marriage is concerned. I mean, there are already a number of these things. The hitching post in Coeur d'Alene wouldn't marry uh, same-sex couples, and they ended up being in a lengthy legal conflict with the city of Coeur d'Alene who passed this ordinance. Uh, uh, in Tri-Cities, there's a, a florist who was close friends with a, a, a gay man, but when he asked her to do her, her, the, the flowers for their wedding, she said, I can't because of my religious convictions. He was okay. His partner wasn't okay. They never filed suit, but the 
Secretary of State of the State of I mean, excuse me, the Attorney General of the State of Washington decided it was his job to actually take it to court and sue this woman. And they're still going through litigation, but basically they're looking at a $7,000 fine and a year in prison because she wouldn't make these. Uh, that's what, what the Attorney General is asking the courts to rule. Uh, in New Mexico, some, there were a couple of wedding photographers. They told a, a gay couple that they wouldn't do their, their pictures. Um, and they posted that on a, their uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook account saying that this is what they were told. And it went viral. And of course, then they were uh, eventually came under suits and civil rights violations and so forth and so on. And were driven out of business eventually because they were bankrupted by, by legal fees. So, I mean, that's something that's not theoretical. It's something that's been going on. It's something that's going to take place. But I think more ominously, the Solicitor General of the United States, Donald Varelli, who was the guy who actually pleaded the case uh, in the Supreme Court for same-sex marriage, stated that the decision, he said, quote, opened the door to a number of other possible concerns. You never want to hear a lawyer use word concerns. One can only imagine, he goes on to say, how legalizing same-sex marriage might also affect religious freedoms relating to admissions or hiring and firing. In other words, uh, pretty much clergy uh, are going to be exempt from a lot of stuff. A church won't be forced to hire a, a gay man or woman to be their pastor or leader. That's not likely to happen, at least in any near scene. But what they can do is go after things like uh, a receptionist, uh, a, uh, a, a janitor or something of that saying, these are non-clerical workers and therefore you have to apply the same rights and privileges and so forth uh, that are extended to everybody else, be treated in the same working place. Um, Chad Feldman, the, the commissioner, who current commissioner of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of the United States, who makes sure that employers are fair to their employees, has basically come out and, and said there can be a conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty, but in almost all cases, the sexual liberty should win. So this is setting up, again, some real tensions. Where do religious, religious liberties begin and end? Where does sexual liberty begin and end? And that line is always the point of conflict that ends up in the courts. Uh, in fact, so much so that constitutional law expert Eugene Volk uh, said, if I were a conservative Christian, which I am most certainly not, <laughs> I would be very reasonably fearful, but not just as tax exemptions, but as to a wide range of other programs. Fearful that within a generation or so, my religious beliefs would be treated the same way as racist religious beliefs are. So think in terms, think within your own mind how repulsive it is when you see people doing racist things, or even these Westboro Baptist maniacs. And you look at this and go, what is wrong with these people? And then think for a moment, what if you simply had your face put over theirs and suddenly you're associated with these kind of hateful, ugly things? It's one thing if you do it and deserve it. It's another thing when you're just really trying to be true to your convictions. Well, 
not only is there going to be litigation, there's going to be a lot of division. Division in families, division in communities, division within churches. Again, that's not necessarily new. Um, I, I feel that many Christians feel like if someone in their family or relative or uh, that they know uh, comes out as gay, that therefore the biblical thing is to cut them off and treat them as if they're a non-person. I question the biblical nature of that kind of decision. I think you're misinterpreting Scripture. But I would say that one well-placed uh, D.C. attorney said in the aftermath, he said, it's hard to imagine where judges are going to have more power to define social and family relationships in the country. That now the courts are getting to the point where they're going to define for us what the most intimate social relationships we have are going to be about. And then thirdly, I think there's come quite obviously confusion, uh, especially on the part of many Christians. Uh, one of the things that Peter warned about when he said in 2 Peter 3.16, he said there would be ignorant and unstable people who would distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. The word distort used there by Paul is, is interesting because it means to twist or to torture. We often talk about torturing the text in other words, the idea of a torturing it is you put it in the rack and you stretch it until you get it to say what you want it to say. And essentially, he, Peter warned, he said, this is what we're going to encounter. The moment you begin to have a writ of documents that you call the Holy Scriptures and they become sacred and inviolate, what you're going to have next is people who are going to want to say, it doesn't say what it says. And they will twist it to the point of even torturing the text to get it to go there. Um, apologist, theologian, and analytical philosopher William Lang Craig, who is in no way a, a, uh, uh, a liberal guy, I mean, he's very, very fundamental in his beliefs, said that liberal scholars have done acrobatics to try to explain away the clear sense of the Bible. It is very forthright and clear, it is contrary to God's design and is sin, speaking of uh, gay lifestyle, he says same-sex marriage, and then he adds any sexual activity outside the security of the marriage bond, whether premarital sex or extramarital sex, whether heterosexual sex or homosexual sex, is forbidden. Again, Dr. Craig, a real scholar in these things, said basically there, there is no question, and yet... Why do I say there's confusion? Because in recent surveys, over 25% of evangelical Christians, people of your and my stripe, say they do not oppose same-sex marriage and they see no problem with it. 25%. 24% say they're not sure whether it's wrong or right. So when you realize that about 46%, close to 50% of all evangelical believers, people who say they believe the Bible is the Word of God and, and they must be born again and all these kinds of things, are really unsure where they fall out on the issue. And again, I think that underscores the fact that how much the ground has shifted under the church. Maybe to some of you, you're stunned by such statistics and these kind of statements, but I think it may, reveals how that we have to basically wake up and smell the coffee. I think that where we need to start is saying, what does the Bible actually say on this topic? And I would begin as we should begin in the very beginning when God says regarding the creation of mankind, he said, 
God created man, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said them, be fruitful and increase in number. Very clearly God's original design was for a man and a woman to marry. And the idea of that relationship is they would be able to exercise their unique procreative capacity. In other words, men and women can have a sexual relationship and produce children. No question this is what was being implied, that the idea the earth would be populated by people, as it says over and over again, producing after their kind. And the idea of kind is that basically there's a a, a union that can be productive, can be reproductive. So that from the very beginning, God said, this is my purpose for human sexuality. So that when you look at a same-sex relationship, one thing becomes very obvious. There cannot increase in the way in which God created us to increase. That's why essentially it would say that even nature itself tells us this is not a, uh, a functional reality. Now, beyond that, and for this very reason, according to the ancient rabbis, it was because of this commandments that the ancient rabbis said, therefore, in Leviticus, in Acts chapter 18, again in chapter 20, same-sex relationships are specifically prohibited In fact, it writes, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable behavior. Now, I think the statement is pretty clear. Where I find it unfortunate is how we handle the word detestable. The word detestable does not imply that God sees people who are gay as being detestable or sees them, as, as is often translated in the older versions, as an, as an abomination or abominable. And I say that because what he is referring to, if you follow the grammar, he's commenting on the behavior or the action, not on the person. And unfortunately, as Christians, we often don't make that distinction. What we simply say is, if I find your behavior objectionable, objectionable then you become objectionable. Well, as a man who's been married for 45 years, let me tell you, there are many occasions in which my wife has found my behavior objectionable. (laughs) Does she stop loving me? Well, not permanently, but... (laughs) But do you understand the distinction I'm making? I'm being a little silly, but don't you understand there's a big distinction? So that we, sometimes we say nonsensical statements, Christians. Well, we, God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. And I say it's nonsensical because we really don't practice that. What we say is God hates that sin and don't come around me, you sinner. I think there's some heart check stuff here we need to begin to do in terms of how are we going to respond that make it very clear that God hates a lot of things. He hates divorce. But that doesn't seem to stop Christians from doing it or, feeling, keep them, or cause them to feel guilty because of it. Our divorce rate in the church is equal to the non-Christian community. God says, I hate discord. I hate it when people go around talking about other people and putting other people down. Does that slow us down one whit? Do we feel like God is angry at us? So what we need to realize is that God loves us in spite of our behavioral options or choices. What he hates is what those things do to us. If I can say anything simply, and I'll say it again later on, what God does hate is hate. But thirdly, this is a truth that's indelibly itched. 
etched. Because one of the arguments that is being out there now is that, well, that's the Old Testament, you know, and they weren't allowed to eat shellfish, and therefore we don't have to pay attention to those old prescriptions because we're in the New Testament. What amazes me, we're overlooking a little statement made by a gentleman by the name of Jesus Christ. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In fact, Paul commenting on this dynamic says in, in a letter to the Romans in chapter seven, chapter 7, verse 7, he says, what shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And he goes on in, in, in fact, verse 12 saying, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So obviously there's a lot of misunderstanding about the relationship of the Old and the New Testament to the Christian life. And some mistakenly say, well, that's the Old Testament and we don't have to pay any attention to it. But the simple fact is that the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself said, the law is a holy book. It reveals to us what sin is. And what it tells us regarding same-sex relationships is that it's sin. It's not something that is approved by God or something that we can just say, well, that was then and this is now. In fact, when Jesus spoke in Matthew 19 about marriage, it's interesting how he framed it. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning, he's going back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And then he says, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Gune, the Hebrew word, or the, English, the Greek word that's used there, literally means wife, woman, it doesn't, you can't be a male and be the wife. You can't be a female and be the husband according to the biblical formula. That's why when Paul was writing to the Romans in Romans 1.24, speaking of the effects, the deteriorating effect of idolatry in, in, in human society, he says that there comes a point where basically he said God gave them over. In other words, it's a point where man can persist so long in a certain direction that God says, I'm no longer going to put roadblocks in your way. I'm going to let you just go full bore into this and reap the consequences of your decisions. He says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then he describes what it is. Even their women exchanged natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Again, that word perversion, it's a, sometimes I think that's their unfortunate translations because what the word perversion actually means is an alteration of something from what it was first intended. In other words, he says, what was God's first intention for marriage? It was between a man and a woman. Bring in any other variation, one man and two women, one man and 12 women, one, one, one woman and two men, uh, 
And he goes on, in fact, Leviticus 18 is a list of just about every combination of sexual distortion that's possible so that it's not simply the gay lifestyle he condemns. It's all of what calls under the rubric of what's called sexual immorality from a biblical definition of what comprises sin. Um, one of the passages that has become the most debatable, I think, interestingly enough, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul says, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about things that will exclude people from eternal life. And then he adds this little disclaimer. He says, do not be deceived. So whenever it says do not be deceived, it says you need to tread very carefully here because if you ignore this, you're stepping into uh, some dangerous territory. And then he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, is the way that NIV translates the word malakoi, nor homosexual offenders, arsenokates is the Greek word here. Uh, he says, and then he goes on to list uh, about six more different types of behaviors, all which he said will exclude somebody from the kingdom of God. What is interesting is that a lot of effort has been made by gay polemicists to basically say that this word asenokoites doesn't uh, apply to homosexual or gay behavior. Actually, uh, the first word, malakoi, which is translated male prostitutes, literally, the most literal translation of that word into English is squishy, squishy. In other words, it's the idea of, of being soft in a, in a feminine sense, and it referred to the passive partner, a male partner in a homosexual intercourse. In other words, there is the passive partner who receives uh, the male organ either orally or anally. That's what it's referring to and how it was historically used. Now, the other word, asenokates, it's interesting because I, I, I read something even this morning where the guy was saying, well, that was a word invented by Paul. It's not used anywhere else in ancient Greek and so forth and so on. And it kind of surprised me because what the individual was overlooking is the fact that the one place where we see this word used to describe homosexual behavior is in what's called the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. In about 300 years before Christ, 300 B.C., uh, there was a translation, the first translation of the Hebrew Bible into another language. It was translated into the, the lingua franca of the ancient world, which was Greek. And it translated all of these passages using what they considered to be equivalent Greek words. So that when we talk about chapter 18 of Leviticus, chapter 20, where it talks about male with male and, and so forth, and being prohibited, the word that the translators chose was this word, or senokates, so that what Paul, who is himself reading the same Septuagint translation and quotes from it extensively, we can tell because of the way the wording is, he took the word, he wasn't just creating, inventing a new word, he was simply quoting Leviticus 18 as what was prohibited. The term literally is a, a compound word. It means male and bed. And it's the idea that this is the dominant, the penetrator in the uh, homosexual relationship. So, but, you know, I could go on and on, because, but time does not allow me. 
But even when we look at such images as in Ephesians chapter 22 where Paul talks about the image of Christ in the church and he refers to the church as being his bride, what same-sex marriage does essentially is explode that whole illustration. And it's an important illustration because Ephesians 5:22 through 25 or 31 is the only place in the entire New Testament where the relationship of Christ in his church is portrayed in this way, as a marriage relationship. And what it does is it says very clearly it's a relationship between a man and between a woman. There, suddenly, if this becomes a relationship also including same-sex couples, then suddenly the whole illustration is gone. It no longer has any fit meaning to communicate what he wants to say. But let me add just one other thing to this because this is more of a lengthy discussion than we have in this time frame. When you go back and read the writings of the church fathers, we're talking about starting with the Didacti in, in 70 AD, uh, all the way through from Justin Martyr in 151, Clement of Alexandria in 170, uh, Tertullian in 220, Novation in 250, Cyprian of Carthage in 253, Arnabas in 305, Eusebius of Caesarea in 319, uh, Basil the Great in 373, John Chrysostom in 390, Augustine in 400, or even the uh, Apostolic Constitution written in 400 AD. What we find is Every one of these writers basically condemned the idea that same-sex relationships had any kind of biblical uh, recommendation or a license and spoke of it as being something that would separate an individual from God. They had no other understanding. In fact, there has no been no other understanding historically in the church until about the 1960s when this new theological interpretation was put forth by uh, one uh, theologian and it was picked up and now is being popularized in a lot, of, especially on the internet, by a lot of different people. But I think it's important for us to understand when Paul makes the statement regarding some traditions, he says, we have no other traditions in the church, this would fit into that same context. The idea that marriage should exist between uh, two men or two women or any other kind of a combination other than one man and one woman is the biblical standard that was not only taught in the beginning but was practiced and reiterated throughout the entire history of the church. So what we are coming up with today is a novel new look based on the arguments of some based upon the fact that we are evolutionary beings and we're outgrowing the old strictures of God who said this is the way it is. Well, most Christians have pretty much known this more or less and have kind of accepted this being factual, but that began to get significantly eroded, that confidence in the 1990s, because suddenly we were told that this was a genetic or biological dynamic for which the individual has no control. In fact, one of the most popular myths out there is that 10% of the population is gay. That is repeated incessantly, and yet the National Health and Social Life Survey, a government-sponsored survey, found that 2.8% of the male and 1.4% of the female population uh, declare themselves to be gay. In other words, it's a small percentage, it's not a large percentage, this isn't widely spread. There are a lot more people who have dabbled 
in same-sex relationships and a lot of other things. But in terms of people who really identify as being a, a gay individual, it's a very small percentage. And this isn't just for the United States. Other studies have found this is worldwide. Around the world, there's pretty much 1% to 2% of the population of any country who have an orientation towards same-sex relationships. And that's why it, 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 it kind of astounds me when you begin to hear things repeated over and over again and, and spoken of so matter-of-factively and so authoritatively, rarely do people ever ask, so where did you get that information? Well, most people don't get it because it takes a lot of work, believe me. It's consumed me for a while. But, but what I find more interesting is the belief that there is a, a gay gene. Uh, in fact, one local columnist who writes, writes for Faith and Values, and, and oftentimes, I, I read it every week because he has some really good stuff to say most of the time, but he made this comment in his last issue. He said, today the scientific evidence is showing more conclusively that homosexual is part of people's DNA. Uh, where this got its impetus were a couple of studies done by one by a guy named Stephen LeVay and another by a Hamer who basically said they had gone and done research and identified things that proved to them or suggested in fact their own wording was suggests that there is a genetic link to uh, same sex relationships or homosexual orientation or whatever however you want to phrase it um, so the researchers at Science Magazine uh, first did a series of studies. They did three follow-up studies on their work, and they came to the conclusion no other study has been able to duplicate LeVay and Hamer's findings. The data does not support the presence of a gene of large effect influencing sexual orientation. Um, in an interview with that same magazine, LeVay simply, honestly, thankfully, admitted. He says, I am... <coughs> A homosexual, I'm a gay man, I'm a gay activist. I went looking for the results that I wanted to find, and I found the results that I wanted to find. In other words, it was not science, it was his efforts to prove his own opinions. There's another idea that's gaining thought since the gay gene thing is, is really becoming more and more exposed as not being valid, and that's what we call the hormone hypothesis. Now, again, most people don't distinguish terms like, what's the difference between a theory and a hypothesis? Well, a theory means you've seen a, a series of facts that seem to support a conclusion, and therefore it deems further study. A hypothesis means um, you basically have your own idea. It's a proposed explanation on the basis of limited evidence. In other words, we look at something and say, there seems to be some kind of relationship. In other words, when we even talk about evolution, most people are surprised to say that evolution has never really risen to the level of being a theory, scientifically. It's still on the level of being a hypothesis because there are certain things that are gathered and they're compared and saying, aren't these things alike? But there is no evidence linking these things together despite what is often popularly communicated. But be that as a case, is there a hormonal dynamic? Well, there was a study done by uh, two, two scientists, Bine and Parsons, and they published it, their results in human sexual orientation, the biological theories reappraised. 
And they said, basically, currently, data pertaining to possible neurochemical, that would be hormonal differences between homosexual and heterosexual individuals, are lacking. They just said simply, there is absolutely no evidence. Now, people will respond, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be. That's true. That doesn't mean there couldn't be green men living in your basement either. I mean, you know, that's not how you decide things based upon what could possibly happen. You know, and, and yet people will simply latch onto that and begin to say, well, scientists say, and I would just encourage you in conversation, ask for chapter and verse, saying, where'd you, where'd you hear that? Where'd you hear that from? Um, it reminds me of the young man I was sitting next to in a plane one time, and freshman in college, bright, charming young man, and we got into a conversation, and he saw my Bible, and he said, are you a Christian? I said, yes. He said, I could never be a Christian. I said, why not? He said, because I believe in evolution. And I said, of course you do. And he said, what do you mean? I said, have you ever heard evidence or arguments to the contrary? And he said, well, no. I said, is it possible that you're not fully informed? Uh, maybe. And so I wrote him a list of three different books written by non-Christians, John Christian scientists, basically saying, we're having lots of problems with this theory. And he said, go home and read those. I hope he did. But I think that really describes many people. We gather information and from, from various sources, but we don't really know. It's, it's kind of like a sitting in a restaurant and the guy says, oh, this abortion thing is way overstated. There's hardly anybody who gets an abortion nowadays. It took everything in me not to lean across the opening in our booth and stick my head in there. I mean, I came so close, but I would just say, 52 million babies, 1.3 million every year. Hardly any abortions. I thought, where do you get this information? But uh, my wife didn't want to be ruined dinner, so I just thought, (laughs) sometimes I feel like Popeye. It's all I can take, I can take no more. (laughs) You know, it's just... What does the preponderance of evidence suggest? Well, it's amazing because there are over 400 different studies that say that it's, they call it developmental theories. I like what David Kinnaman said when he said, human sexuality is a complex puzzle of personality, of a tainted sin nature, of individuals' histories and personal needs. It's a combination of all of those things. You, you have your personality. We all have certain inclinations in terms of our personality that may predispose us to certain things more than someone else. We are tainted by a sin nature. There is not, I often say that if I'm breathing, I'm most likely sinning. It's just a function of, of the fallen nature of mankind. Everybody has their own individual histories. Many times things that we don't even recognize or remember from our own childhood, and then also there's issue of personal needs and how we decide subconsciously many times how we can best meet those needs. Is change possible? And this has become a real hot point. In fact, the state of California has ruled that it's illegal for what they call a uh, uh, kind of rehabilitative type of therapy, that it's against the law now for a, a psychologist, psychiatrist to work with somebody who says, I want to change my sexual orientation because, I mean, the the logic of that law is is a little bit staggering to me. 
But it's interesting because a guy by the name of Dr. Robert L. Spitzer, who was the psychiatrist who originally persuaded the American Psychiatric Association to omit homosexuality from its lists of disorders. You see, up until uh, the late 1970s, uh, homosexuality was defined as being uh, sexual orientation disorientation, and the idea was you could go into therapy like any other disorientation and become reoriented over time. Well, uh, he was the one who persuaded the American Psychiatric Association to omit it as being a disorder and to begin to classify it as being a normal behavior. And it's interesting, like he, but he said, uh, like most psychiatrists, I thought that sexual orientation could not be changed, and now I believe that's untrue. He has a, a now a, an organization called NARTH, which basically works in what they call reparative therapy. And uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing shift in many ways. But it's also, when we talk about, can the person change their orientation, um, isn't that what happened when you got saved? What do I mean by that? When I gave my life to Christ, my orientation towards the world around me changed 180 degrees. You know, Paul described it on the road to Damascus that scales fell from his eyes, which may have been literal in his sense, but it was also really metaphorical in the sense that he saw everything in diametric dimensions. He no longer was able to view the Christians the way he had viewed them before. He saw them in a totally different way. And I know that for myself, when I became a Christian, my sexual orientation was altered. I suddenly realized that the way I was engaging uh, the, the female sex was sin and it was wrong and I needed to repent and embrace God's will. doesn't mean it stopped being a struggle. But listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about these 10 sins he lists. He says that will keep men, if they live and practice these things, will keep them from reaching heaven. He makes this comment. He says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He goes on later in verse 19, he says, For your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the idea that people can change, uh, well, let me put it this way. If I say to someone with a same-sex orientation that they can't change and they're born that way and there is no other alternative, then I'm really contradicting the very thing that Paul said. He said you can change. Now, Please, I don't want to be simplistic about it. Is, that, is it a simple change? Is it an immediate change? Is it, uh, it's, quite honestly, I wake up every day asking God to change me. Because what I discover every day is there's things in me that do not glorify God. Now, if you're sincere in your faith, I would guess that that's where you live too. I don't know how you can read the Bible and not go, oh, gosh failed that one too. But that's the whole point. You come in repentance. Repentance means there's a turning of my heart because there's been a change in my mind. One of the problems we have as Christians is we expect regenerate behavior from unregenerate people. 
In other words, I expect somebody who does not have the spirit of Jesus Christ living inside him and all the power that comes with that to live a different life than they live. And we get things out of order because we almost begin to think that, that if you're straight, you get to go to heaven. If you're gay, you don't. Neither of those are true. You only get to go to heaven for one reason, because you ask Jesus Christ into your heart. Amen. Does that have a behavioral effect? It should. My wife questions sometimes if it has, <laughs> for good reason. But let's be honest, which brings me really to the last part of what I want to talk about this morning. It's simply this. What is supposed to be our response to these things? I want to give you my thoughts, first of all. The number one, God is abundantly clear, Old and New Testament, that He loves everyone, and we have to stop excluding certain people from that category. John 3, 16, God so loves the cosmos, the world. The cosmos in that context means the entirety of humanity. That when God looks at mankind, if he's looking at a gay pride rally, do you understand that he looks with love and compassion and, 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 and holds up his pierced hands and says, for these I died? If he can say to the men who nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. How is it beyond the pale for us to do that with anybody? Secondly, God doesn't hate gays, God hates hate. God doesn't hate gay, but God hates hate. And I think we have to have a real soul check, you and I. Because oftentimes we feel like because it's a behavior that is identified as sin, therefore somehow I'm justified to hate somebody because they struggle with that issue in their life. Because what that breeds thirdly is a worse kind of hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy that sees sins in other people but doesn't see it in ourselves. All of us are sinners. All of us are sinful. Most, I know you agree with that. That gayness is not just one of many kinds of sin. Or excuse me, gayness is just one of many kinds of sin or gay behavior. And it's certainly not the unpardonable sin. Rejecting Jesus is the unpardonable sin, if you have your theology right. In fact, David Kinnaman goes on to say in his book on Christian, he says, the struggle of being attracted to the same sex is no different than my struggle in being attracted to the opposite sex. It is true that all sexual sins are particularly destructive in people's lives. That's the nature of sin, after all. But this is true of all sexual sin, not just gay sex. Then he adds, the greatest sin in the Bible is idolatry, worshiping other things beside the true and the living God. Many of us are guilty of idolatry. We worship our cars, our jobs, our reputation, our careers, our you know, favorite whatever, you know, that, that great putter that makes you excellent. I mean, we all enables you to putt around so well. <laughs> but we go, the two most commonly condemned sin are idolatry and pride. Anybody guilty of pride here? No. 
Good, I'm glad because I'm not. (laughs) But fourthly, I think we need to realize that attraction is not the same as action. To be tempted is not the same as to sin. James says in chapter 1, verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. He talks about we have evil desires inside of us. Do you have any evil desires inside of you? Some of you do right now. It's for me to shut up, okay? (laughs) Okay. I get it. But that evil desire, he says, because of it, we become dragged away. We become enticed. And enticement means that suddenly the thing that God says, no, that's an evil desire, we begin to believe is not only not evil, but it's desirous. It's Eve looking at the fruit and saying, it's pretty to look at, and I think it tastes good. That's where the desire comes in. And boy, it will benefit me in so many ways if I just eat of that fruit. She discovered that that was an enticement. It wasn't true. But then he says, then after desire has conceived, it's actually been put into action. It gives birth to sin, and sin when this full grown gives birth to death. That's why I think it's interesting when the New English translation, the guys out of Dallas Seminary, super conservative group, right, uh, translated their version of the Bible in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. They wrote this, realize that the law is not intended for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious people. And then it goes on to identify, it says, practicing homosexuals. And they say in their own footnotes, the reason we put that there is because that's the implied meaning of Paul's writings, that it's the practice of the sin, not the attraction or the orientation that God holds in judgment. In the same way that if I look at a beautiful woman and I start thinking things that my wife would slap me silly if she knew were going on in my head, that that's one thing, but it's a very, very different thing if I begin to create adulterous liaisons. And we understand that, but we don't see it as being true of others who struggle in a different way. And that's why, fifthly, I think it's important to make a distinction here that being gay is not a choice. Okay, let that sink in for a while, because I want you to really hear this. Being gay is not a choice. William Lane Craig put it this way. He said, People don't generally choose to be homosexual. Many homosexuals testify how agonizing it is to find yourself with these desires and to fight against them. And they'll tell you they would never choose to be led that way. I mean, think of the consequences to many folks who suddenly come out of the closet. They lose friends. They often lose family. All sorts of negative, they get ridiculed, rejected. You know, realistically, nobody would simply say, I choose to do this because I just think that would be fun. He goes on to say, the Bible doesn't condemn a person because he has a homosexual orientation. What it condemns is a homosexual act. It is perfectly possible to be a homosexual and be a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, just as an alcoholic who is dry will still stand up in an AA meeting and say, I am an alcoholic, so a homosexual who is living straight and keeping himself pure ought to be able to stand up in a prayer meeting and say, I am a homosexual. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm living chastely for Christ. 
And then he adds this last point. I hope that we'd have the courage and love to welcome him or her as a brother or sister in Christ. So let me finish with an action plan. There are three things I think you and I need to do. First, I think we need to repent. What do we need to repent of? I think as Christians, we need to repent. We need to stop calling down fire from heaven. Remember Luke 9.25? They came to the Samaritan village, and believe me, you want a parallel between the view of gays and the view of Samaritans in the first century. There is one that you can have. Uh, Jews hated Samaritans with a passion. So they're passing through this Samaria. They come to this village to buy food and supplies and they won't let them into the town because they know they're Jews and they're heading to Jerusalem to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And what does his disciples do? They come out to Jesus and say, Lord, Allah, Elijah, do you want us to call fire down from heaven? And it says that Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you're listening to. You see, what the church has done is we've relied on politics and preaching to reach a segment of our community that feels like all that's happening is fire is being dumped on their head. They're being devalued, they're being ridiculed, they're, they're mocked, there's jokes, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Nobody likes to be treated in a derogatory manner. You don't like it, I don't like it. We don't like to be generalized about and have people summarize things about us that we know aren't true. We have to stop picking up stones, a la John 8, with a woman who's brought to Jesus in adultery. Is she in sin? No question about it. Nobody's arguing that. They said, we caught her in the very act. But Jesus' response is, he who is without sin, let him pick up the first stone. And we read that they left one by one, beginning with the oldest, and then finally the youngest. Uh, Joe Whitmer made a great comment. I love the illustration. He said, what happens when you throw stones? He says, the response is one of two things. People either run away or they throw them back. I just wonder if the church had been more compassionate and caring if we wouldn't be where we are today. I wonder if we're reaping what we've sown. We need to stop stereotyping people. You know, I mean, there are things that I read that are said about gay people, that gay people are, and they just begin to have all the most horrible things attributed to them. They're all this way. Well, you, you say, if you're gay, you're a pedophile. I know a lot of heterosexual pedophiles. I've had them in my office. And they're not gay. they got a real problem. So anything you say against the gay community can also be equally applied to the straight community. So you have to understand those kind of stereotyping doesn't help anybody have a meaningful conversation, which is another dynamic. I would say most essentially, stop being afraid. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Stop being afraid of the gay community. I know I shared some ominous possibilities that are going to come in the future. And you know what? Some ways, in some ways, I'm, I'm very sad by the Supreme Court's decision. I'm also very thankful because I think it's going to shake the church out of its complacency. I think it's going to force us to say, we have been ineffective 
unsuccessful in impacting our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do we need to do to become more effective? And the, across the board, the answer is always the same. You guys are so hypocritical. You guys are so judgmental. You guys are so unloving. So I think that if we really say, what do I need to repent of? We need to repent of our hypocrisy. We need to have our judgmentalism. We, we need to repent of these things and say, God, this is sin. This isn't how you are. We need to repent of bigotry. The, the gay community often accuses Christians of being bigots. Um, I'm afraid if you look up the definition of a bigot, in many cases they're right. A bigot is someone who thinks that he's spiritually or morally superior to someone else. And I think the church operates out of a bigotry. That somehow we look at some people's sins as being worse than others, and that makes us feel better about ourselves. We need to repent of that. All sin is sin. All sin will take people to hell. It's only the grace of Jesus Christ that saves. It's the only the power of Christ that can change a person's life. We can't change other people, but we can pray that God would change them. So the first step, I think, is you and I have to begin just by repenting. And secondly, I think we need to start reaching. When I say reach, let me ask you, how many of us pray for people who are gay? How many of us actually pray? I mean, honestly, most Christians rarely, barely pray at all anyway. But how many of us have ever really prayed for somebody who's struggling with a same-sex attraction? I think that's where it begins because that's where we're saying God changes people, we don't change people. But secondly, we need to be willing to connect with these people. Instead of saying, how do we keep them at arm's length from us, why be afraid to actually befriend somebody who is in the gay community? You might discover something about them that you didn't know. Quite honestly, I found them to be some of the most intelligent, well-informed, kind. Oh, I've met some gay jerks. <laughs> I've met some straight jerks, right? That's just human nature. But I think it'd be amazing if you were willing to connect with some people in a way that enabled you to have a, a caring and respectful conversation. And thirdly, in reaching people, we have to care. The story of the Good Samaritan is, is classic because I remember years ago I teaching on, as we're going through Luke, which I was just, you know, that last book I was in, I was teaching out of chapter uh, 10 in Luke uh, 40 years ago. But... I made the statement, I said, okay, let's contemporize the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's change it to the good gay activist. I says, does it change the flavor for you? You know, some people left the church after that teaching. Okay. But that is literally an equivalent. When you look at how the Jews viewed the Samaritans, and I can picture the veins swelling on the necks of those Pharisees when Jesus was saying this, because this was incomprehensible. They taught, if you have the chance to kill a Samaritan, then do it. And if he's in danger of losing his life, don't you interfere, let him die. That was the strength of their hatred. They considered them to be the worst. They were on the lowest list of humanity in their mind. And when Jesus said there was a Samaritan who was better which showed greater kindness than did the priest or the Levite. They were outraged. They were scandalized by what he had to say. There's something about 
caring for people. Someone once said, people won't care what you have to say until they're convinced that you actually care. Somehow we've given ourselves permission. Because we're right, we feel like we have the right not to be loving. We have to repent of that and change that. The thirdly, we need to be redemptive. We need to redeem. I would say, be wise. Paul in Colossians 4, 5 said, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. What is wisdom? It's, it's acting maturely as a mature follower of Jesus Christ, a well-informed, knowledgeable follower of Jesus Christ who understands the issue. You will never understand the struggle of a gay person until you sit down and let them tell you their story. And let me tell you, their stories are often compelling. Not in the sense that you have to say, okay, I agree with you, it's okay. I can't do that because of what Bill, the Bible says. And keep in mind that some, just because somebody's honest doesn't mean they're telling the truth. Truth and honesty are not always the same thing. But I find that almost many times, even we as straight Christians aren't honest. But we need to make most of every opportunity we have. But secondly, we need to be safe. When Paul said to the Ephesians, speak the truth in love, he was talking about love, the truth that may be hard to hear but it's delivered in a way that convinces me that it's safe to have this conversation. Um, my prayer for this church is that we become so safe as a community of believers that a gay person can come to you or me or anybody else in this church and say, I'm gay, I'm struggling, and they would feel safe in that conversation with you. Rather than being rejected, rather than being ridiculed, rather than being rumored about, you can't believe what he just told me. That rather we become a community that regardless of what people want to come out, so that the adulterer will feel safe to come out. And the guy who's strung out an Oxycontin will feel safe to come out. It's not just the gays that have trouble coming out. It's anybody who has any kind of issue that's overwhelmed their life and they're unable to manage is terrified to come out because of how they expect to be treated. So I'm not just talking about this. I'm talking about the whole spectrum of being safe. And lastly, that we be like Jesus. To be wise, to be safe, to be like Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were scandalized by Jesus' choice of relationships. I mean, they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus loved and associated with immoral women, Samaritan heretics, the diseased, the destitute, the demon-possessed. When you look around at the people that Jesus hung out with and he made contact with and he connected with, that was the very point. They had no tolerance, the Pharisees, for those people. They were reaping the consequences of their sin and they needed to repent. And Jesus touched the leper. There's more power in that statement than most of us recognize. He touched a leper. Nobody touched a leper. Paul to the Corinthians in the second letter made this statement. He said, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. That's what you are, friends. You and I are God's letter to be read by the world around us. 
what's written on the ledger of your heart? What is communicated there? Does it communicate that Jesus loves you? <laughs> Jesus has a beautiful plan for your life? Are we willing to say to somebody, I, I, I'm sorry you're struggling, I'm sorry it's tough, I'm sorry it's hard, but God loves you. And I'll be your friend and I'll pray for you and I'll stand with you. You see, it's a very different dynamic. I think that, quite honestly, if the church of Jesus Christ in the world and particularly in our own culture had, if we had thought to respond, if we stopped thinking that we could just preach at it or that we could go to the polls and fight it back, that somehow that would resolve the problem. What we're missing here is that people, the desire of every man, Solomon said, is for unfailing love. It's true of you, it's true of me. It's true of everybody, whether you're straight or you're gay, we desire unfailing love. The sad thing is many people are looking for love in the wrong places. But they're looking for love. And that's just not somebody who's struggling with their gayness. <laughs> that's true of us all. We're looking for love. And we end up looking in the wrong places. And we end up getting consequences we don't want. Now, how can I say that confidently? Because I know what the Word of God says. And let me tell you, if, if, if you're struggling with your orientation, <laughs> whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, whether it's gay or straight, however you want to phrase it, at the end of the day, the answer is in Jesus. And the Word of God is very clear. It, what is sin is sin, regardless of what I want to think it is. And quite honestly, I've had far more straight people come to me and justify sin. I've had far more men and women come to me saying, I know it's wrong to have an affair, but God knows my needs. I know it's wrong for me to get a divorce, but God, He'll understand, He'll forgive me. And I just sit there confounded. And I want to ask the question, do you know Jesus? Do you, know Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Father, I pray that these things that I've shared at length, and I know right now in the children's ministry, there's a lynch mob forming right now, as I even speak. But I pray, God, that this subject that is so, so central to the moment we are in would begin to really navigate our own souls and, and bring us to that place that you want us to be. Lord, I just, you know, if there's things that I've said that are incorrect or or off base, Lord, then I just pray that you'll reveal that to us all. But at the end of the day, Lord, I think your word is really clear. But I think, Lord, we really do need to repent as a church. Give us the grace to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.